This week I have Mr. Notorious for his high, tough playing style of rugby league. Mick Crocker on to chat about football, life after football and what it's like to be a footballer. Hello, Gregory. Man, I'm looking forward to this Mr. one. Notorious. Well, Is that because that's I've got a red beard and I'm kind of Irish? Wow, I never thought about that. Well, yeah, maybe a little breach of uh, trademark going on there, but uh, nothing, Sorry, nothing official, Sorry, mate, Connor. but he's ready for a fight if you want one. Let's go. <laughs> Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want, and should know about health, fitness, nutrition, and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent, or manage any injury, disease, or other health-related condition. Burn the fat and feed the muscles with this high-protein, low-carb, low-fat, best-tasting daily protein powder. Hydroxyburnlean 5 proteins are released in a sustained chronological order therefore maintaining their different absorption rates, fast and slow, ensuring constant muscle fuel so you stay fit, happy and healthy. This synergistic blend also includes 17 vitamins and minerals, added carnitine, and a proprietary blend of digestive enzymes, Digizyme, and Arafti prebiotic to aid digestive health. Welcome to Body Science HQ, the land of fit, happy and healthy. Today we've got one of our good mates, Michael Crocker on. How are you, mate? I'm excellent, Gregory. How are you? I'm good. Now, Mr. Crocker, as he's known in rugby league circles because of his hard-hitting football game, played in an amazing 13 years in the NRL. Now, that's an athlete, mate. Like, the average guy's playing, what, 50 games? Yeah, so I think the numbers work out to somewhere between 50 and 70. I don't think that includes young kids that come into the first grade squad and don't play a game. So, yeah, it's it's roughly about three years, but it's it can be a cruel game at times, and I was blessed. To, to have the career I did. I don't think I did everything I could to to stay at that level for for so long. I think I, I obviously, looking back now, we, we could have changed a lot more and, and been a bit smarter about looking after myself. But. Well, you obviously treated your body like a temple. 13 years in the NRL, you don't do that, eating <laughs> meat pies, drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. Uh. It wasn't too far off. <laughs> That's the problem. Like Back in like when I first started, it was, a, it was a completely different era. Like We've spoken about it before with the body science stuff. Like You guys educating us on protein was like teaching grade one as English nowadays, you know, in terms of what, what people and especially athletes know about sports science so yeah we, we didn't have any of that it was basically yeah it was it was it was a beer after after the game for recovery and you didn't really look after yourself and you didn't eat, eat right for for your for your type of body so yeah I, I, there's there's things that could have made me less injury prone I reckon but uh, like I said I'm blessed to have played the career have, have had the career I did were you able to pull off 13 years in the NRL because you hit the judiciary so many times so like you've, it, it got, definitely you've prolonged got a record my, for that haven't you it prolonged my career it I've did. got no doubt about so that strategy? Was, it was definitely a strategy you have three or four weeks in and then one week off yep. to rest and recuperate and come back. So, so but, I, but I never actually went to the judiciary. I've never been. You haven't? Always guilty. Like just that clear? Just, yeah. yeah. And, but they were only little ones. They're always, usually always little charges where swinging arm or a late high shot or something like Mate, that. I'm not sure where this came from, but I'm just going to read it verbatim for everyone. Notorious for his tough playing style combined with a high and sometimes dangerous tackle. <laughs> Were you a high tackler, were you? I think I was lazy. Oh, yeah, yeah if, if, if people step in, you just throw an arm up like that. Or sometimes I'd be next to a really good defender like a Stuart Webb who would chop them really low. So they might have been falling, just circumstantial. Just unlucky. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't aiming for high shots. <laughs> Mate, did you? were you always going to be a football player? Like, did you play junior school, you dominated, and it was always going to be something you did? Or did you work hard? To... Not really, yeah. I was I was always a kid. I played every sport that I could. I was outdoors every every second that I, that I could get. I played league, union, cricket, basketball, tennis, athletics, cross country, so. 
I did I did pretty much everything all the way through. Played grade cricket and rep cricket all the way through until first year after school. I played rep rugby. Missed out on most of the rep teams for league. I made rep in 12s and 17s and that was about it. So yeah, it wasn't something that I thought was ever going to be a, a career. It was just something I really loved doing. And once I finished grade 12, you know, obviously had options to play cricket and, and rugby and, and league. And I just love league. I always have. I love the I love the tackling side of it. I love the physicality. And I just went and played some. I was still playing local footy and played Colts and went up into first grade at Redcliffe and luckily got a start down in Sydney but I was as a kid I was a skinny little scrawny kid that could run and, and jump all right but I was a bit of a sook and I was injury prone you kidding me yeah and I played in this team so we had um, a lot of Queenslanders might know there's a guy called Ross Hendricks played Queensland State of Origin he coached us from 11s through to 16s and he he, he went to all the state carnivals and got the best kids from each each division and, and brought them down to Brisbane and they got a good league education under him and, and they went to to Wavell College to get a good uh, proper education that didn't quite work out well for them but <laughs> We had a super, it was a superstar team and and I was the thirteenth best player on that team so I always had to work hard every day just at training just to compete with those around me and I, I love that love that challenge and out of that team sadly I I went on and played first grade and I think the coach's son Trent played Q Cup and I think that was about it that actually went on and, and had a career so. It's so what do you think you got a career out of it and the other guys, you know, you said you were 13th player. Like, yeah, well, like, like I said, I, I always had to work hard and, and try and prove myself every day. And there's a lot of kids who had there's so much talent in that team. And obviously there's choices that people make as well that can then send them down the wrong path and opportunities that get missed because, you know, they're, they're, they're not looking after themselves off the field. So, yeah, like it's sad, but it's, it happens in, everywhere in sport and you see all these kids with a lot of talent that, that go to waste. So it's... Mate, yeah. there's a lot of mentoring around these days in sport. Was there any around in those days for you? Not really i was just lucky i lived in a street with i think 12 12 other kids and i was i think the probably the third youngest so i had all these older kids that i could look up to and every day after school we'd come out someone would kick a ball around or hit a ball up against a wall and we'd be out playing league or cricket until the mosquitoes got too thick and we yeah. got called in so i remember i remember my 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 direct neighbor was the eldest of the the group that we had and i think he was in grade 12 when i was in grade five or something so it's probably eight year difference or something like that so i remember playing cricket we used to play with this the taped up ball the tennis ball so it swings on one side and uh, i hit him i hit him pretty good one day and i sort of gave him a little head shake head nod <laughs> and he didn't have to say anything he came in the next ball and he ripped one into me and it swung in like hit me in the gut <laughs> and i just sort of he didn't he didn't have to say anything, but I knew from that moment that you know I had to be more humble, and uh, I learned and earned respect pretty well out of the the people I was around, and obviously family as well. They they had a really old school sort of culture and upbringing, which was you know respect your elders, and I think that that's definitely held me in good stead moving forward all the way through my career. Mate, let's touch on that family thing. How is the uh, NRL ex player family? Is it something you've stayed part of? Is it something that's um, honoured as ex players? Yeah, there's there's steps being made now to make it better, but I think uh, club wise, it's it's much better so Melbourne Storm obviously they have a, a really young history compared to most clubs so they do a really good old boys weekend and, and stay in contact with it with everyone all the way throughout the year but you look at a club like the Rabbitohs where you've got 115 years of history it's hard to tie all those guys together and get in, get in one group so I'm lucky I've got a couple of mates that have played football and retired as well so that obviously helps out but yeah it's it's still it still presents its challenges and it always will yeah nice well mate let's have a chat about you as a footballer you uh bettered yourself in the NRL with which team to where I first met you. Uh, yeah, a trick question. No, so the Roosters. <laughs> I think each of three clubs that I was at was a different stage of my career and my life. So yeah. I think they reflected each other quite well. Roosters was young and a little bit wild, which is the way I live my life. Went down to Melbourne. 
I started growing as a person, as a player under Craig Bellamy. Came back to the Rabbitohs as an older player. I was not the eldest at the club, but became a senior player and a, a leader and captain. So it was a sort of an evolution of my, reflected my life off the field as well. Yeah, nice. Strong club, but big history. Mate, tell us about your days at the Roosters. I mean, that, you started playing 2001 with the Roosters, is that right? Yep, first year. So I came down the end of 99 and played flag which was under 20s down there played a few games there then played flag sat on the bench for reserve grade in the same day and then played the rest of your reserve grade and the next year did the same so reserve grade and then um after i think six rounds or something i got to start in first grade so yeah it was a perfect progression it's a perfect pathway it's what we've got we've gotten back to now but obviously the under 20s mess things up a little bit in terms of how the pathway pathway is and the best pathway is coming in my my first reserve grade team was quinton pongia ian rubin nat wood brendan hurst all these guys that are you know former first graders or fringe first graders so again talking about earning and learning respect really quickly when you're playing against men as a, as a young man you definitely get that instilled into you and it toughens you up as a as a footballer and that 2002 team where you got your first premiership ring that was full of rock stars like that was, was an amazing yeah. team on paper we uh it was a phenomenal team and sticky was his first year coaching a first grade team and yeah we had we had some great cattle we were a really fit squad we knew that uh, we started slow i think we had a heap of injuries at the start of the year so it was a, it was a tough road but we knew that we were doing things that other clubs weren't we were fitter and we we sort of imposed that intimidation over the next few years with what we could do in between balls so we'd kick down on if we if we kicked the ball out on the first or second tackle we'd sprint down and, and pack the scrum so teams would be sitting back going oh god not again we're in for a long day yeah. so when you've got guys like adrian morley you know, luke rickardson fitzgibbon those guys you know pretty much all of our forward pack bar i think one or two could do 14 on the beep test when yeah. they stopped us so <laughs> it was uh yeah it was a phenomenal team and obviously you know freddie there in the back line as well leading us was yeah it was uh a very good time to be around. Yeah, that was um, that was the first year we got into sport actually with. Uh, I remember, in remember it vividly. Yeah, I remember Wentworth Park. <sighs> Nath came in with his bleach blonde hair, <laughs> spiky. I think he had flared jeans on as well. <laughs> I think he still got them. And then you came in and you actually talked a lot of sense. So, like I said, it was an education that you'd think as professional athletes at the time we would have known. But talking simple stuff like whey protein and the protein window and stuff like that, which none of us had barely any of us had heard of, which is you know thinking thinking of where the that supplement market's at now and education of people. It's really simple stuff, and it made such a big difference Absolutely. for us. Absolutely, mate. It's not rocket science. It's just got to be smart. It's just science. It was funny because Ronnie Palmer. It's just sports science. I remember when he called up, he he was pretty much I don't believe in supplements, but I've got a problem. I'm not sure if the boy's going to make the eight. And he goes, I'm, he's, well, I should probably shouldn't say this. He'd probably be pissed off if I said he didn't have a lot left on ideas and what to do. So came in and we just dropped the basics of protein and creatine and a little bit of glutamine and the basics. BCAAs. And, um, and that was it. everyone loved it. Yeah. And Ronnie was a guru. So any, anything that Ronnie said, we were, we were going to take on board. And, mm. and like you said, he, he he was that old school sort of he, – he's the type that he's got such a, such a positive energy where he – like he used to talk to us about visualisation and healing injuries and all that sort of stuff. So he, he, he expended everything that he could on getting us to, to prep and, and prepare mentally and, and physically. But, yeah, it got to that point where it wasn't looking great and those little things make a big difference in a sport team. And, mate, big steps for him to, like, pull our sports nutrition brand in at those days because no one was doing it. it was, exactly. And look at the progression of it after that. Well, I think, it. you know, he single-handedly helped launch our brand. And I know that's a big thing to say. I probably haven't said that out loud before, but, mate, thanks for that. <laughs> 
still got his signed shirt and the he still grand looks ex- final night. And he still looks exactly the same as he did 25 years ago. He's always super fit. His physique is phenomenal. Yeah. So here's a funny story with him. He he did his bit and then we jumped into a commercial. None of us had ever spoken to a commercial or elite team before. It was like, holy fuck, it's an NRL team. What do I do? <laughs> like, I had no idea, mate. We ended up getting short sponsor, doing sup, getting heaps of subs into you guys. And we went on to uh, win a premiership together. And we did, yeah. The, mm-hmm. So I actually missed, nearly missed out on this grand final too. So I think the second last round we played up in Brisbane. It was the first time I was going to play back in Brisbane against you know against the Broncos who grew up um, watching and wanting to play for. So going back to Queensland, I was always excited to play. And remember we got there, we were playing Friday night, and on the day Sticky said to me, "Mate, um, you're going to be 18th man today. I'm going to run with Eric Growth." I was like, "Okay, that's fine." And then he said, "Oh, you'll be playing at Wentworth Park tomorrow at, against Newtown." It's like, "Okay, that's fine." Anyway, so I was obviously a little bit disappointed. And John Cartwright was the assistant coach at the time. He was coaching the reserve grade, so. I was having a few beers after the game and, and we all ended up out together and kept looking at Cardi. Cardi was still there, so I kept drinking. I was like, <laughs> well, if the coach is here, I'm surely he's... You're he, a team player. I must I be it. all right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was one of those days where you drank pretty much all the way through, went straight to straight to the airport, Henson Park. It was hot, it was dusty. We were playing against um, Newtown who had... Garth Wood was playing, Robbie Stinson, they were really tough footballers and it was just one of those days where every bloke was after me because I'd played first grade and every tackle there was a forearm or a hit across the face and I was just, get, get up and play the ball and just, oh, not today boys, please not today. But I actually had one of the best games I'd played all year so luckily the next week Adrian Morley got suspended and I got a got a recall into the semi-finals, played good and held my spot. So yeah, yeah, nice. it, was, it, was, it was nearly a, a final series that I missed out. But again, I think that reflects how I was living my life as well. Like those decisions I was making to, to drink and stuff, I don't think that that was the, the greatest thing for me to uh, perform consistently. So, Mate, we had the same type of luck on that day. OSC fucked up the shorts, so he did the how, white how shorts was, instead that, of the blue shorts. That was shorts. the first game. Yeah, and, and that and was against that, yep, the Bronx and... Hodjo killed it. I remember yeah. that playing against his old club. Yeah, and so it was white on white on white. Yeah, and you didn't change. You played. Yeah, it looked. It looked. Yeah, it looked. It looked so much better. Well, it got so much media because. Yeah. You know, are we the good luck charm or is it the science and? Definitely a bit it, of both. Yeah, exactly. Combination. We'll take the good luck charm all day long. <laughs> but that launched us. You know, we went on to sponsor a lot of teams after that and nutrition in sport. Massage were doing a little bit of it, I suppose, back then. But yeah, it was an interesting play back then when it came to sport yeah. supplements. Like most people looked at you and said, "What? What's that?" Yeah, yeah but it's it's so simple. But isn't that what bodybuilders use? <laughs> you know, isn't that a steroid? Like that's the type of shit we used to get back then, twenty yeah. years ago. And now it's just a standard practice from everywhere, from kids all the way through. Absolutely, absolutely. So, mate, after that, you went on to play in quite a few grand finals, didn't you? Yes, we had three in a row at the Storm, at the Roosters. Sorry, obviously won that one in O two, lost. 03-04 not the greatest feelings losing grand final but it's not the end of the world not not winning a grand final you know it's, it's still an achievement to make it absolutely then went down to Melbourne first year I was there we made the grand final I actually did my knee the game before so missed out on it and then we are lucky enough we played 07-08 before I made the decision to leave and go overseas probably shouldn't have it was a one thing I, I wish reflecting back that I would have thought more about the actual decision to, to leave it so at the time I was I think mentally mentally done physically I was in good shape I had a, a really good year in 2008 but just mentally coming into a game I couldn't couldn't get up for it I, it was a it was a surreal feeling to play against Manly and Brisbane and teams that you automatically get pumped for and you're in the sheds trying to talk yourself into getting up for a game and it just didn't have the feeling for it so can we touch on that a bit or yeah so yeah, mate, how, how does an athlete pick themselves up when they're not feeling like at game day like what what type of things were you doing to get yourself in that spot so it was really like I said it was really surreal for me so physically I felt good and I was fit and I was I was fast and I was, I was playing and training really well but I just had no emotion for the game which was a it's a it's a strange thing because when you love something so much like I love training I love being around the mates I love competing I love you know going to get out against any opposition no matter what it is so to be sat in the sheds before the game
game and just have nothing. Like no, it was literally nothing. Like he sat there just going, okay. Yeah, wow. And then you get out there and you do your job and you play good, but there's no feeling attached to it. There was Yeah, so it was something that I needed to – because my, my problem was I train – myself to exhaustion and yep. I put everything into into training and I'd always I'd always wanted to be a footballer that everyone wanted to be around so I was always positive always had really good energy I, I loved that like like I love I love being a trainer with the boys so it was something that was always came naturally to me but to not be able to feel that was was something different I think looking back I needed to have something away from football I can't I, I invested so much in my in my training I spent myself at every session to be as good as I could be but I needed I needed an escape away from it so so is he is the NRL look like they've got a whole lot of programs heaps, heaps for players now, yeah. now. So yeah. this was before. So the under twenties, the silver lining to under twenties was they really brought in that culture of education. So every player in the under twenties had to work or study to play yeah. on the weekend. So that's really spread all the way up to the top end now. And all the research shows that you need to have something else outside of football. You've got to have something. Uh, all the good coaches really push that on their players to make sure they've got a hobby or something to distract them and, and have have going for them away. So yeah, it's I think it's up to it's eighty five plus like around that 85 percent now that are actively engaged in education or formal work outside of football that's sensational so it's yeah it's, it's come a long way and coaches now are starting to realize the benefits of making sure that players have that have that escape as well because yeah it does it it, it can be draining and, and same for coaches I, I saw it with craig bellamy and other coaches that you know, they put so much into <clears> the into their preparation and, and looking after the team that they don't they forget about what's important to them and that's their family and yeah. and living that good life and if you, if you have a club where you're underlying yourself with family family is one of your values and you've got to make sure that you're doing that from the top end all the way down i'd love to touch on the values part in a sec but i just want to ask did did you have anyone that you could go talk to in sport back then because I mean, obviously, everyone's talking about mental health now and and anxiety, and it's it's you know it's it's okay to talk about that. But back then, was that like a closed box? You just took that on yourself and you sat there with it, or yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah. like I've, I've got some good mates now. As I went mid twenties on, I, you know, I, I could talk a little bit more about that. But it was always something like like I said, for me going into training, I always had to be positive and have that energy, and I, I love being like that. But at times, that can that can drain you as well. If you're trying to lift up everyone else's spirits around you, and you take on their burden that can get draining on you so at times now that I'm older I realize that I have to at some time say you know what I'm having a I'm having a shitty day and just sort of really express that to to let it out because I would come in and I'd have times where my first year when I came to to the rabbits I had ankle left ankle left groin and left shoulder surgery all in the off season in the space of six weeks then I was in rehab for you know a good six months, and a lot of it was by myself. So at Redfern, the gym and the sheds are all underground. So I'd come in and <laughs> I'd be in a I'd be in a jumper some days because the aircon's so cold. And then I'd come out and be 35 degrees and watching the boys train and, and run around. So that was tough for me, but I always had to you know I had to keep that energy, I had to keep that positivity up, and and I did. But then I'd go home and I'd be exhausted from really physically promoting myself as everything was all right and everything was good so then I, I took away from what was happening in my family life and I couldn't really give give to that so that's where you have to find that balance of making sure that you know you've got got an outlet to express it and, and deal with it and yeah at the time I could I couldn't I actually didn't know that it was having such an impact on me I just thought I was just being normal yeah okay and then my partner of course said she had no idea as well like she's obviously well something's wrong with you and I'm like no I'm fine I'm good I'm training good and everything everything's fine so yeah it's it's that communication that's that's key and my partner now is I'm blessed a really good communicator and she said we had to mention her today do you just want to drop her name yeah just yeah. how about we drop her insta handling she'll love that <laughs> 
<laughs> can we get it up? Can we plug it up there? Yeah, you can say. Oh, actually, she's you don't know pro- what it is, no, she's yeah. private. She's private, so I can't. Oh. Uh, you can check out the business, but we'll yeah, what's the business one? Throw it out there. <laughs> Duke of London. Co. There you go. Get on board. International brand. Um, no, but Kiri's been great for me, and and I think we've been great for each other in terms of how we bounce off each other. And yeah, she's just a great li- outlook on life. Little things like that, where yeah. yeah, just being able to express myself a lot more, and it's something I've never done before. And but it has, it, it does have a big difference too, because I always. She always gets frustrated at me because I don't express any emotions. But then when I do, she's like, "Do you feel better?" I'm like, "Yeah, actually, it does make you feel better." Like you just, and I don't, have, I don't scream or yell or anything like that. But I just need to say some things at times and just say, "This is frustrating me," or "I'm feeling like this." I mean, you're known as a hard man in, in in rugby league. Back back in the days we're talking about, you just couldn't say that type of thing out loud, though, could you? No, it wasn't something like your boy. Well. Well, I was brought up showing... Hang on, you were born just as I was leaving high school, mate. So, yeah. <laughs> so through the 80s and 90s, um, when you were probably still a young teen. I left school in 85, just so you were born in 1980, <laughs> just so we know where we're at. You're a young teen. You're a young man. But yeah, it was you never showed weakness. Like any any sh- showing of weakness or pain was a, was a sign. Any sh- showing of um, pain or personal um, insecurities was, was weakness. And yeah. it's something that you didn't, you didn't let anyone else know about, so... Um, you always had to portray yourself as tough and strong and, and resilient and be, being able to deal with your own issues. And I, I still carry that. I, I think I still try and deal with everything myself instead of reaching out to others. I never, I've never asked for help. I don't like asking for help. I never will. I don't think it's, mm-hmm. it's something I, um, I really struggle with. Uh, but at least now I've got the tools and the people around me to to be able to deal with things if I need to. And what about players in the modern game now? Have they got those tools now at club there's, level? There's so much education being done on resilience and gratitude and a lot of these things. So when the gratitude stuff came in, there's a lot of positive psychology and stuff that comes naturally to me. So it, mm-hmm. it wasn't a shock. But then hearing from other players and, and different clubs and the wellbeing managers at all the clubs, it's not the general outlook on life. Like I'm a glass overflowing type guy. I'm not half mm-hmm. full. It's not like I'm over the top flowing. So for me, that was normal. It was like, why wouldn't you feel grateful for everything that's that you've had in your life and the opportunities you've gotten? Be positive about what's happening. Whereas, yeah, most people actually think worst case scenario and they're always thinking negatively about what their situation is. And even with injuries, I always, if something happens, I always think the best case scenario, whereas most other people think okay well what's worst case so it's just that little mindset of different things that can that can make a big difference but there's a lot of education work that goes into it a lot of time spent on practicing it and, and making sure that it's relevant to their day-to-day preparation um, but at the end of the day it's a, it's an individual thing and if you want to buy into it you don't you you will or if you don't you know it's not um it's not going to be beneficial is that being run by ex-players or is that being run by trained professionals so it's been developed by trained professionals and run by wellbeing managers at the club, some of which are ex-players, but they've gone through a, uh, a Cert 4, I think. It might be even be a diploma now, or a Cert 4 in elite athlete wellbeing. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty intense course, but it's something that's it's actually quite good in terms of building relationships and having that communication set to be able to talk to different individuals about where they're at and what they're doing. They have these heat maps and self-evaluation scale of where, where you're at week to week. So you get a good gauge of where you're mentally at each week when you're at training. And is that a NRL-driven document or is that a club-by-club club document? It's NRL-driven, yeah, by the NRL Education and Wellbeing Department run through all the clubs. Man, that's sensational. So, mate, you mentioned family values when you were with the Storm. Like you got, you said it was one of your pillars. I think was the word you used in relation. How how does a football club set up a family based model and still win football games? So, Storm's an interesting one. So they 
they had some really great leadership when John Rebo and Chris John sort of got it up and running. Uh, they got Chris Anderson as coach. They had some really good senior players, Glenn Lazarus, Tawira Nikiao, these sorts of guys that had really strong personal values and they brought that to the club and they built this culture around around these guys that was driven by the players. I mean, that's a, it's the only way you can ever have good value systems within a club and, and to build that culture is to have the senior players driving it and it has mm-hmm. to come from the top down. So that, that when I got to the Storm, that culture was already ingrained. I actually didn't nearly didn't get a start at the Storm because uh, when I was being shopped around by the Roosters, Craig Bellamy went up to Robbie Kearns, who I'd toured with a couple of years previously in England he said mate Crocker's off contract um, thinking about signing him you, you, you toured with him what are, you, what are your thoughts he goes mate love him great great bloke great player just a bit mad I don't think he'll fit in down here and Craig went I'm gonna give him a chance anyway so that that goes to what their you know how strong their leadership group was and you know for, for Robbie to identify that I was a little bit mad and might not have yep. fitted in their culture it was a pretty strong message and then Craig obviously identified that I was someone that you know, I'm not. I'm not a bad person. I just. I did. I did enjoy a drink. But the best thing about Craig is when I went down there, he never said to me, "Don't go out. Don't do this. Don't do that. I don't want you to do this." He just sat down a few of us and said, "When you look around the circles, I think it was Jer- Jeremy Smith, Dave Kidwell, myself, Ben Cross, and Garrett Crossman." We sort of looked around and went, "Well, we're all aggressive. We're tough players." He goes, "Yeah, you are, and I want you to be aggressive. I want you to be tough." But you give away stupid penalties. You're a little bit reckless, and I think that is a reflection of your life off the field. If you can balance the two out, I think we'll be all right. That's all he ever said to us. And he didn't give you any tools for that. He just gave you no, that, and you just, just left went. us with the rest of the rest of the team. And then obviously you hang out with the the players around the club, and you know when you do go out and have a beer, it's all very not it's not that it's structured but it's all it's a, it's a good environment so everyone looks after each other and being in melbourne you're away from everyone no one no one had family or no one had immediate family down there obviously had partners and, yeah. and children but not many mums and dads around there so we, we were our own little family so it was an easy one to build that family culture off because we had to rely on each other so much off the field because most players there was no melbourne born kids playing back down then there's yeah. a couple now but everyone came from queensland or new south wales or somewhere else so yeah everyone looked after each other and it was it was one that really was instilled and like I said so when when Craig was focusing too much on football and then forgetting about his family that reflected in everyone else as well so and we saw the way he was living his life and he was just fully absorbed by coaching and it was it was draining on him so that that becomes then draining on the on the players as well so he changed that and he recognized it and made some changes to his life and made sure that he was you know family first and then football was second and I think that's that's held everyone in in such good stead and that's why he's been so successful for such a long time down there well the results speak for themselves don't they it's, it's funny because I've seen it go in cycles where at the Roosters we went we trained harder than anyone of it like we trained harder than we were in Melbourne but it was there was no like I said no no sports science to that there was it was a lot of um yeah fat clubs <laughs> fat clubs, fat clubs <laughs> I was in that for a little bit Finchie was in that for a long time he came to the club but he's he was still a baby but he was like 19 or 20 and he had he had baby fat and he got in there and sticky goes you get under 80 on your skin files I'll, I'll get you out he got he got out of it he got under 80 about halfway through the year sticky goes oh mate you're playing good footy so we'll just keep you in there. <laughs> so he stayed in there for the rest of the year but even like 100 hundreds and different things that you know we we were doing that because we knew that nobody else was doing it and if yeah. word got spread around then clubs would be like oh wow these guys are these guys are mad so yeah it was <laughs> The Roosters, we, we trained at that level and we had ourselves up every week for, you know, 26 weeks of the season plus the finals. We tried to maintain that and every year we tried to Im- improve on how we were training our intensity. And after three years, it just it slid like you can't maintain that for so long so and that's one thing that that Craig identified and we were sort of going through that period when 2006, 7 and 8 we were you know increasing our intensity but things were starting to slip on 
you know, in terms of what was happening away from the field. So once we got that balance and, and realised that when we're in training, we go really hard, but then make sure we had enough time away from football with our families and to pursue other hobbies and it really balanced each other balanced it out and who brought that to the club like that that's a big step in a sports team full of men to someone to come and say hey we're going to focus a little bit on family now and, and so i think it was a bit of it was i can't be quoted on this but i think it was a bit of self-reflection with craig but he always had a, a coach around him as well so he had a, a coach's coach so i think they used to do a few workshops and stuff throughout the year and obviously craig became better at communicating and, and the coaching stuff around him so for, for him to say that he has to also speak to the training staff Stuff and Alex Corvo was the, the strength and conditioning guru, so they would have had to have had the conversation as well to say, okay, well, how do we balance this out and, and put what we need to in the workloads whilst giving the boys enough time away from from footy to work it out. They they changed the mould in terms of, uh, and this was after I left there, so we always used to go play, recovery, video stuff the next day, and then you might have a field session then a day off. Whereas they started having two days off after the game, then coming in and doing their their recovery and review and then start their week from there. So that sort of changed the mould in terms of what it looked like. Wayne was Wayne was blessed to have that system, I think, at the Broncos as well. They were playing nearly every Friday night, so the boys would get the weekend off. And then you There's come no favouritism who plays Friday night. No, no, no. Well, TV, TV, TV pays the bills. So, <laughs> But it, it, it was an easy system for them, and it, 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 it actually works because they t- get that time away. But you also have to have the trust in the playing group that you have. So yep. if back of the Roosters, like we had to do a recovery, but it was just walk walk down the beach at Bondi and have a swim. So you know, we could turn up a little bit under the weather and, and get away with it. Whereas if we didn't have to do anything, we, we you know, we could have been in worse shape so yeah. Um, yeah you've got to have the trust in the group that they're not going to do the wrong thing all weekend they're going to look after themselves and come in on monday fresh mate you actually love the sports science like you're you're having a chat do you you love it you love the subs you love the t- talking about it. when did when did it hit r- football rugby league when did sports science get a big play in your career where you saw a noticeable difference in the monitoring obviously the gps was a massive step forward but for you personally when do you think that it went from being a game of you know, amateurs to a game, a true professional from on and off the field. It started from that first day you guys came in. So the first association we had, like just those little things that we did, but you know, we were were blessed to have you guys around and educate us with little things or if it wasn't directly through you, it was through our staff. So I was always interested. Ronnie would always have some different stuff for us. Obviously we got onto Tribulus and and different things that started coming through and you could feel the the difference in in how you trained and how you recovered. And then as I was, so as I was leaving to go to Melbourne, it was the mid-20s by then, so started to get more curious about different things and you, you research then you go down you're taking different supplements about alanine started coming in so you want like you want to i wanted to know what i was taking and what i was doing and the benefits of it so the more you I didn't read many labels though did you I don't read labels, no. Nah. Just I just read documents. I've seen a few photos of you taking subs. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, but it's experimental, isn't it? How you how you <laughs> how you have it doesn't really matter how it's ingested. No, exactly. As long as it's it's in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and obviously as you grow older, you need to. And I've you know was, I had a number of injuries and stuff throughout my career, so I always had to make sure that my focus was on how do I recover best from from what I was doing. And like I said, I didn't always do that the best that I could, but I was always taking whatever I needed to to, to make sure that I. And get back and doing the rehab that I that I needed to do. So yeah, I've always been interested in knowing that my body was taking a battering that mm. I that I needed to make sure I was getting the best out of myself. So was the game harder back in the early days, but slower, or was it? How would you describe the two thousand and twos versus when did you uh, retire? Two thousand and twelve or thirteen? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a bit different. It, I always it was tough all the way throughout. Yeah. Like I don't think there was any any mistake. I think the game now is is fast. I think it slowed down 
last year just with the the way it was officiated but it's a it's a tough physical sport and it always has been and always will be the athletes are getting bigger i know that's a mm. like it's crazy how big these kids are now and i remember doing some stuff with queensland under 16s and presenting jerseys and shaking their hands and looking up to them you know that, that, that's how big these kids are at the moment the things they can do are phenomenal so it's always been physical it's always been tough it was not that it was it had never been violent in my eyes but there was you know, you could get away with a little bit more back in the early 2000s than you than you can now. So I think that's for the good of the game. I don't think I think there was anything malicious in most of the tackles that you know, whether it's a high shot or a, a, a late shot or a forearm to the face, which I was I grew up. Yep. I grew up at Bash Up Park at North, so it was um, something I just thought you did if you got on top of someone, you put a forearm <laughs> to their face, and if they got you, then you have to you have to deal with it. So yeah, I I, I, I don't like comparing generations, but I just think football's tough and it always will be. And what have been some great changes to the game, like, in your eyes? I think speeding up, so anything that speeds up the game, so looking at the 40-20s and the quick taps and players sprinting back now with the seven-tackle sets to, to get a quick tap in, out of their 20, 20 on the 20 line. Um, little things like that that just make it fast and flow. I think the referees play the biggest part in the speed of the game, so mm -hmm. the more they control the ruck and say, the quicker they call held or clear, the quicker the players are going to get off and the quicker the game becomes, so that's where you get that real fatigue, and we've seen some games this year where they've let it flow, the ball's in play, and it eventually gets to the point where a team will kick out to get a scrum as a almost like a mercy rule. All the refs, will, and this used to happen in Origin, the refs would call a penalty after 25, 30 minutes because it was <laughs> it was too hard. Like it was it was brutal. It was end to end. It's nonstop, and you, it, it was almost like a mercy call. It was a mercy <laughs> penalty because the players couldn't get up. They needed a break. So and yeah, and good halfbacks will identify that. So I think that's the best. That's the best. Our game looks when it's like that. And I think the interchange at the moment is is perfect. I don't think we need. To, to swap it but the the more the referees can control the ruck and speed it up like if if i see a, a player lift one leg they should be they should be calling release and and away straight away i think they yeah. they can and they, it happened in rugby as well where the re referees control the speed of the game and the scrimmage and all, all that sort of stuff so the more control they have and the more empowerment they have from you know the staff that are looking after them at nrl i think graham manersley's doing it now the more empowered they are to make their own decisions and to to call the tough calls and i think the better the game's going to be yeah, nice. Speaking of better the games, you mentioned Origin. When, when was your first Origin jersey? 2003. It was, uh, I got picked as a hooker. So PJ Marsh broke his neck and I'd been playing a little bit of – I was a bench player at the Roosters and played a bit of hooker and, and back row and got a start in game two. It was, it was a very – Surreal feeling. I think I was actually disappointed in in game one. I I thought I was the worst. I was reading my own press and in the paper they took me up for Origin, and so I thought I was not guaranteed a jersey, but it sort of had pictured it in my mind that I was going to play in game one, and I missed out. So I was disappointed. But you know, to get the call in game two was you scored a try or something, didn't you? Yeah, it's, it was a pretty. It's a pretty emotional time. Like it's something that as a kid you always I always wanted to play Origin and every kid growing up in Queensland does. My my old man took me to the outer when I was <laughs> How um, good was it? I was ten. Yeah. My first first experience of State of Origin in the outer, 10 years old. There was a guy running past dressed as Benny Lice, full head tape wig, blue jersey. <laughs> I remember I had a pie and he was running past everyone, throwing beers and pies in my mouth. It's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh. <laughs> had a shot. I don't know if I hit him or not. I but, that. Yeah. But you could feel like, I remember I could feel and hear the, the hits on the ground. And yeah. It's a pretty uh, surreal feeling to think back and remember the moments like that and then be able to run out and running, running out at Suncorp. Uh, well, Lang Park is, I don't think there's any better feeling at origin time when you're running out and the flames go up and the, the crowd roars. Like it's, it's, um, it's something that, that gives you, 
gives you tingles thinking about it. I remember watching a game from home when Greg Inglis was playing fullback. I think Billy, Billy must have been out. Queensland had defended three or four sets on their own try line and they showed a footage of Greg waving his arms up to the crowd to get them to, to cheer and then you hit, heard them roar through the through the TV and like it's moments like that like I'm at home watching that hearing it but then you know imagine being there in front of 55,000 oh, or how many years that, that noise is is something that you just can't um, there's nothing that replaces that. Mate so just talking about that nervousness you're talking about there kick off are you thinking fuck don't kick it to me or kick it to me you want your hands on the ball straight away yeah or the quicker you get involved the better yeah. like it's, it's the same as anything i always try to get my hands on the ball or get a tackle as early as you could because once you get that like and I, like i was i used to spew on the two minute bell every as, as soon as the two minute warning bell came on I, I would spew so whether it was nerves or probably became habit by the end of my <laughs> career but there was always that that sense of excitement just get me out there and get it get it done so um, that's why it's hard being, being a bench player early in my career I've got a lot of a lot of nervous energy it was very draining to or you know it's hard to control not spending all your energy on the bench so yeah getting out there as soon as you can get your hands on the ball the better especially if you've if you get a chance to tackle that's that's more fun was your game day protocol the same on origin as it was on a normal yeah I'd, i tried to be as relaxed as possible the more i thought about football the more fatigued i get so i was the type that i'd love to have a chat with guys at the ground that didn't want to talk about football so the you surround yourself with those ones that have a bit of fun and have a laugh whereas you've got other guys like ryan hoffman was very specific and meticulous in his preparation, a little bit OCD, and he, he didn't like that. He wanted to focus on his football and stuff, so he had to disassociate and make sure that he had the right people around to have that really relaxed environment. And then once, uh, I think it was about half hour before the game, you start your prep in the, in the warm-up. So as soon as that half-hour mark came, then that's when you flick the switch and, and go. Were your headphones guys yet? Had the loud no, music I just, going. I just liked. I liked hearing other people's music, and you can usually hear it with the old school <laughs> headphones. You could hear the songs, so I'd start singing around them and dancing, um, or just telling jokes, or just you know throwing the footy around and passing. It was any, anything I could do that was not talking about my role on the day or what I was going to do out there. And then once, like I said, once that thirty minute mark came, I'd, start, I'd grab the halfback or whoever I was playing around and start talking about the game and what I need, what we needed to do. And mate, how hard was it to go out of Origin camp? where you're pretty much rock stars for a few weeks to real life. It's actually, I, th I think it's a, for anyone that goes into Origin, you come in, especially as a young kid, you, you go in there and you have, so for myself, I'd, I'd, I got in there thinking that I, I should have been there in game one, but then when I got there, I was at a table with Shane Webke, Petro Sivanasiva, Darren Lockyer, uh, Andrew G, all these guys. It's a know, and I'm, I'm sat there going, oh, Gordon Tallis, and I'm, like, I'm sitting back going, I'm, like, I don't belong here. This, do I do I really belong here? Like you doubt yourself a little bit. So until you actually get out there and do it, like it's yeah, you you've got to earn earn that right and respect. So yeah, but I think anyone that goes in, no matter what age you go into that camp, you come out a better better player and a better person. You've you've matured. You've learned a lot. You've seen how the best of the best prepare and and what the coach's expectations are of you as a, a trainer and a, a person. And I think you take that back with you and you have a, a and it's not arrogance, but it's a, it's that confidence when you come back into into your club land and then you really. It, it, I think I think it accelerates your your career and your development as a as a player and person. I mean, how much does a an Origin camp differ to an Australian team camp? Oh, just depends. Like it's because you're living more together. Yeah, in so. Team, the origin ones, is, they're only there's 10 days. Yeah. So you're in and with Queensland, we were blessed. So we, we had pretty much the same squad for you know that whole 10 years. It was a, pretty much the core players were around throughout mm -hmm. that whole time. There's a few that came in and out of it, obviously, throughout. So it, it felt like a, a brotherhood. It felt like a family. Whereas the Australian ones, I had a few different camps that I only had, I had one tour when I was early, but that was with a heap of Roosters teammates and, and other young kids. So especially the Penrith boys that won the comp that year. We had a really good time. So it was... 
yeah, it's all, and it's dependent upon the the coach and the environment. Obviously, the origin is intense, so it's short and sharp, but it's about gelling as a as a unit, yeah. and you don't have don't have much time to really prepare and, and learn some stuff whereas with the tour you've got we had seven weeks the first tour I went on so you can develop things over time but then once you get into those one week camps it's it's exactly the same like and everyone that's in there they're they're all good they're all good people and you've, you've obviously got a lot of respect for them because they're, they are where they are yeah nice so are uh, you still got your first origin jersey and your first Australian jersey I have yes I've got those I've got a heap of jerseys I just looked at a few the other day actually but yeah I've, I've got none of them up on the wall but my so my that first my question where, where are they yeah no they're they're in a they're in a box in in uh in the shed but yeah my first origin one's a number nine I've got a number six Australian jersey which I'd love I, I was actually it's a really good trivia question actually so I was number nine for Queensland before Cam Smith came in yep. which not many people know if you said who was the Queensland hooker before Cam Smith yeah, okay. people say like Jason Smith and they're, they're thinking yep. way back so there's myself and I think Sean Berrigan played in between that time and, and PJ Marsh so there wasn't too many other options so it was, yeah, it was a, it's a strange little period where I got to hand my jersey over to Cam I knew it was going to be right so you did right yeah, yeah. it right then they always say where to get the magic touch from yeah and then when I played number six for Australia Lockie was still playing fullback so it was a third test over in England and um we had a heap of injuries so I played six outside Noddy so it sort of went Freddie myself uh Lockie so it's a little <laughs> little chink in the gap there but it's still a jersey that I've got at home that says number six for Australia Mate, sensational that's sensational I had no idea about that you had a crack at English Super League wasn't your cup of tea no I didn't actually make it over there so a bad dad joke yeah, it's cups there. Has a good, has a, I didn't actually make it over there. So I had a charge from when I was younger at the Roosters or a couple of years prior. And it was a charge of a frame. My mate was in a fight with two blokes. I came and grabbed one and got pepper sprayed and, and got charged. So unfortunately, the you know the, the British, they sent all their convicts here and they don't, don't want to take any of, don't want yeah. to take any of them back. And obviously, you know, I put in an appeal. I, I, I didn't get granted the visa at first, but then put in an appeal and showed what I had done off the field and, and what sort of uh, commitment I would make to the community. Community and, and corporate partners, they'd already sold a, a number of Crocker jerseys and stuff, so it was a, a bit of hype around town. But yeah, after I think I waited all in all, I was on Billy Slater's couch for four months waiting. Is that right? For the for that appeal to come through, so yeah, we'd packed up the whole house ready to move, and just before Christmas, they said no. Went through the appeals process and didn't didn't get notified until I think it was the end of April. And then it got into talks and obviously came to the Rabbitohs. So it was a yeah, it was a frustrating time. Like I was paying two mortgages at the time, wasn't getting paid. I was living on my mate's couch. He just had a baby, so a six-month-old baby. I couldn't train at the storm, and you know it was a, it was a really it was a really tough period. But it gave me that time to to get away and um, freshen up and and sort of mentally drive me back into it. So yeah, obviously when you've got no other options, you can't. Go, I, I wanted to go overseas because I wanted to travel and, and experience yep. life and in, in a different world. But at the end of the day, I, I sit back and football's football was my life at the time and I needed to make the most of it while I could. I was 20, turning 29 that year, so I still had a, a few years left of footy. I knew that. Uh, my body felt good. But yeah, I just needed to focus on where I wanted my attention to be. So I had to think about what was most important. And most important thing to me was football. So travel, everything else could wait and I could be able to do that at my own time. Yeah. But I just needed to get that drive back and, and sitting at home and thinking about it does does tend to get you get your motivation back for for what you want to do and do you have someone managing your training at that stage or did someone pushing you or any direction not at all? really you no just... i'd pop into storm training every now and then and do some stuff with their rehab boys or you know different things but i couldn't wear any of the gear and i couldn't really be around the group so it was, it was difficult for me i just did a heap of bike rides and just 
I spent a heap of time on the the, uh, the open roads down there. It's obviously a great place to ride a bike, Melbourne. It's there's plenty of good bikeways and stuff. So I'd do a heap of rides and a heap of good hills down there. So that's pretty much all I did. I, I would, you know, it would have been great to be able to do more, but yeah, it was it was difficult. I was I literally thought every week that I'd be leaving for for England. So I didn't really plan for a four month layoff of not being able to train um, properly. So how did you get into uh, the mighty South Sydney Pico? How did you join Pico's team? Uh, it was. So it's, it came down to I think New Zealand and and the Rabbitohs and they were both um, fairly similar in terms of contract length and and financial um, remuneration. Were you so, managing yourself at this stage? No, I had a guy looking okay. after me, so yeah. he had to deal with all that. And yeah. but I just saw I saw an opportunity at South. They they had started doing some much better recruitment. They got some really good players before them, Roy Asatasi and a couple of other guys. So they were they were building towards something. They were sort of on that fringe of being able to push really hard into the finals but yeah so I came there and yeah it was a it was a it was a weird feeling at the time like I, remember, I know going to new clubs and different clubs or when players come in it's usually you know, there's a bit of hype and it's you know it's a new kid in school so it's a bit of excitement but I remember walking into Redfern that first day and it was underground I think it was raining outside and it was dark it was miserable and it was just there was no mood or atmosphere at all and I was sort of saying good day to everyone everyone's head down there off the back of a few losses so it was a really uh, weird feeling to come into and went out to train and the boys were huddled under the with their hoods on their heads under the grand center red phone and i was like what, what are you guys doing i said well waiting to train it's like yeah but why don't we just go out and start kicking the ball and, and warm up and they're like it's raining yeah we're gonna get wet anyway so <laughs> so i grabbed i grabbed adam reynolds there was a big puddle down in the corner so i said kick that ball in that puddle i'll show you how to score a try so he kicked the ball i slid down like 20 meters scored the try got up then all of a sudden everyone's out playing and we're starting to have a, have fun in the in the rain so little things that like that was quite risky to take a dive in the water at the old red fern no nah, it was, it was yeah, once, right, once they did, did it up okay. yeah it's all good <laughs> they, they did a good job of that that re refurb but yeah it was just it was surreal because I saw all these young kids were on good money and it was a chore to them. Like coming into training was a chore for them and they're like, oh, it's a long week this week and it's just something I had never thought about. It was just, you talk about that gratitude, like making the most of that opportunity. If you're coming into training thinking it's a chore and it's going to be a long week, it's a bloody hard it year. Be. It's a bloody hard year to go yeah. through if, you, if you're like that every day. So um, bringing that fun back and being able to uh, experience it with young kids and, and help them develop was, was something special. So, mate, did you get the big call from Russ? Like, how'd it go down? Uh, I had a I had a voicemail. I, I actually left on my phone for a while because I love his voice. Just, oh, let's hear it. Yeah, I, I can't do I can't do it justice. But I reckon you it was can. Hi, hi, Michael Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> just want to let you know uh, that we'll do everything we can to look after you. And then he, I, I actually remember his number because it's, it's had a lot of sevens in it, so I could recite that for for a while. Um, told one of my friends his number, and he he used to call him a few times on the drink. He so didn't, did he? Bad, bad, <laughs> <laughs> bad decision from me because he had a good memory. With his numbers yeah. <laughs> but what, what you've got to love about Russell is what he did for the for the game and for the club and his passion for rugby league he's just he's a great bloke who who loves his league he loves a beer and he's done so much to keep that club he'll get that, get that club to where it is so obviously along with a, a lot of a number of other people but it's a club that's it's got such a rich rich history and the fans and you know the book of feuds and all these little things that, that go a long way and you hear all the stories from from past players and, and different things that it really um it's a culture that you, you can't you can't just brush the past. You've really got to embrace like what they what they've done for the game and throughout the game and what they've been through. You know, being kicked out of the competition, then coming back. So um, to play for them and, and to cap them was a was a very special feeling. 
And when did you captain them? My last year, 2000. Oh, t- 12 and 13, last two years. What was the difference running on as a captain versus a player when it came to the on-field but also the off-field side of it? Yeah, no, I don't think – for me it wasn't too much. So leadership for me is about actions and, and what you do. So I've always been – uh, lead by example type guy uh, training and like I said earning and learning respect you you know you lead with your actions first then you earn respect by what you're doing so and then once you once you feel like you've earned that respect then you feel more comfortable talking and I sort of think that I over the years I developed into a a better leader by being able to communicate expectations to other people so what we had to do off the field or standards around the club and what we, how we had to push ourselves and drive ourselves so I think that for me was no different than you know running out first in front of the the team or, or third I was doing exactly the same job and on the field obviously the only difference is talking to the referees and I learned some pretty good lessons when I was younger where I didn't abuse referees but it used to be only one TV game a week and I if I thought it was a bad call I remember I think it was Kelvin Jeffs I told him that he'd be in reserve grade next week and he was <laughs> carrying on because it was a TV game and yeah, every game I played under Kelvin after that I, I got stung a lot of penalties so <laughs> it was him and another one Mogshin Judwat I uh not that I got in verbals with them, but I, I was I was a little bit lippy as a young kid, and yeah, definitely it was to my detriment because I was definitely targeted after that, which rightly so. I needed to show a lot more respect for the officials, and as I grew older, having a, a decent conversation with them doesn't change their mind, but at least it gets them thinking. And yeah. if you talk with them with, with respect and um, a bit of humility, they they generally listen. So, have you ever had anything overturned by having that little chat on the field? No, but I think it definitely plants a seed for them next time to make sure that they're they're thinking about what I've said. Okay. I think you look at Cameron Smith now, he's, he's the best at, it's, it's not manipulation either, it's just having that conversation and it gets them thinking about how they can be consistent in, in different regards. Yeah. So mate, back to back to the bunnies, as a leader, did you step up, and I know you said you didn't make a lot of changes because you lead by example, but the, the resilience and the gratitude that you'd been mentored under down in um, Melbourne, obviously when you go into a leadership role and people who take on leadership, there's two types of leaders in my mind, but that, did you pretty much in your head open the textbook of what you were taught down there? Because it sounds like it was an amazing upbringing through that part of your career. Did you bring that to the, to the? I mean, it's impossible to say, did the Melbourne brand come to South Brand? Because that'd be a stupid thing to say. I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to say is, like, did you bring a different level of croc to the team? I don't think so. I think I just, I, I bought myself as who I was. I, I was uh, in Melbourne. I My first year down there, I was 25, turning 26. I was in the leadership, got put in the leadership group, was a co-captain that year. So I'd, I'd always felt like a leader down there because I came in and I was a, a rep player and I just felt like I had that had that standing. I, I obviously, again, through my actions down there and how I trained in the preseason, I earned the right to, to be respected. And I did the same with the Rabbitohs. Obviously, came in midway through the year, but trained hard and, and, and got onto the field. And just, like I said, with that energy and, and positivity, I just wanted to, to drive that and make sure that everyone was loving what they were doing at training and, and on the field. Because, yeah, you said you're going to bring the fun. Yeah, and then getting together. So it's not that I was planning social outings and stuff, but we were getting together on our day off and having we'd have... 10 to 15 blokes having breakfast and going for a swim and you know, we'd have no phones if the f- first person to look at their phone was a fine not a fine but someone got to write a text message to a random person on their phone at, at free range so oh, wow so it was yeah so <laughs> anyone who looked at their phone they'd be in they'd be in strife so yeah we put the phones away they, we could take a photo and they could post it after but yeah. it was always about sitting down at the table talking to each other just getting to know each other hearing stories and, and just being normal and it was something i think worked really well for us we had a, a heap of young kids that came through the under 20 system at the Rabbitohs together so they were, were a slow group and we had a couple of older guys like myself and Roy and then Sammy Burgess came over and Luke Burgess and Matty King so just trying to gel those um, different characters into 
into one team and there's I think it, it made a big difference having those times where we just had to ourselves it was away from football you talk about anything you have fun and you really bond uh, and and get to know each other and the more the more that you love each other as as mates the more you're going to play for each other so it's something that I have always seen as critical in a team to make sure you've got those environments where people know that they can trust and and rely on each other and are you doing a lot of talking these days in relation to that leadership I mean people love a good sports story yeah I I do a little bit in in corporate lunches and stuff like that but it's something that it's hard for me like I was doing some work with McGrath Real Estate and I was trying to write out my story Mm -hmm. to you know, to do a open mic type thing where I come in and speak for 40 minutes and just have that story mapped out. And I was writing it like an autobiography, so it was too much. So I've got to strip it down and, and get to the key points. But there's, like you said, there's a number of different things in leadership and success and what what I um, have seen and, and how I have been around different environments that have created created that success. So, and it's, it's pretty simple. It's a lot of it comes down to, to effort and optimism and positive energy and and different things like that so obviously the hard works under underpins it all there's no easy there's no easy way around success there's no there's no shortcuts to it but if you have that positive energy and effort into it and you're going to drive yourself to to get there no matter what you're doing it's going to be successful so being able to relay that to to businesses and and different um i actually spoke with the gold coast suns earlier this year it was the first time i'd really spoken about that level of competing especially throughout training so everything you do at training if you're competing as hard as you can on every effort you're going to be it becomes habit so once you're out in the field you know it's, it's second nature to you so it's, yeah it's, it's something i'm i definitely i'm interested in but i'd just love to be able to express it more without gibbering too much <laughs> no mate people love it people love it so look just tapping towards the end of this i mean i think we've got people going for over an hour now so some people will be going gee i've got another life outside of this mate what what's some things you could tell an up-and-coming athlete any sport like to look at leading into where they want to go so I think that competitive drive, so the buzzword in all sports is resilience, right? Yep. So I think resilience like success is an outcome of different things. So for me, if you're competing every day to be the best you can be, no matter what it is, whether it's you're playing cricket in the hallway or you're doing weights and you're, you're pushing your partner or you're doing a sprint drill and you're trying to beat your mate, like anything, even, even if you relate that to a business, if you're doing whatever you can to hit your KPIs, then you're going to be better. And that, that creates that habit of you as, a, as a, a person that's going to put in effort but then the positive energy side of things I think is really important if you have that positive optimism about what you're what's going to happen and the positive energy around you and the fun that you're going to have around training I think that really builds resilience because you don't really know how resilient you are until you until you need it until you Keep actually testing. until you actually go through that adversity but if you yeah. put these things in place and you're you're doing all those things right then you've you've pretty much always, always got it so if you strip it right back you go okay what what do i have to do now i've been through adversity whether it's injury or you know family issues whatever it is you just got to then focus on what you do next and if it's your next effort and you've got to do it as hard as you can then you compete and then you think positively about the outcomes of, of what you're going to do and then you surround yourself with good people that bring that energy up so yeah, i love that i love it's, it it's pretty simple for me and i think you know every kid if you sat there and went to all sporting teams and asked every kid if they were competitive 99 percent would say they put their hand up as, as a kid they're competitive so at, at school i used to write everything finish everything i could as fast as i could and look around to see if i, I beat everyone in the room 
So you obviously learn over time. It's not about how fast you get it done. You've got to have that quality involved in it as well. So that's just that competitiveness in me. I wanted to win first. But then obviously as you grow older, it's got to be better. So if you then ask that same group, if they say, yes, you know, that's me, I'm competitive. And if you ask them if they compete as hard as they can on every effort at every training session they're at, you'd probably get 50% say, oh yeah, I, I do. So yeah. you've got to you've got to have that intensity every time that you're in there. And that's where that sports science comes in because you're not going to overcook yourself. If you're pushing yourself every time and then you get that rest and then when you get in the field, you know you're going to be a better player for it because you know that you've done what you can to prepare. So, mate, and, have, re- and have fun. If, yeah. you, if, you're not, if you're not enjoying it, it's not It's all aspects it's not right. of life, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a, performance that make it so draining. Just have fun. And if, you, if you're not that fun person, there's always one in the club. So get around them. Mm. Get around that person who's, who brightens your day. When, when they walk in, you know, there's always someone that walks into a room and everyone feels lighter and, and, and more relaxed. Yeah, nice. So, mate, that rig of yours, how are you keeping it fit these days? What are you doing? Not as much as I'd like to. I, um, like, I don't want this to be a soft story, but I've, uh, I've had a heap of injuries. I had 25 surgeries, and I know there are a lot of people a lot worse off than me, but I, I was okay for the first four or five years. I could do stuff. I could run around, but the last couple of years, especially I played a bit of NFL last year, played two games and tore my hammy and, and I'd try and run and do different things down. I've torn my plantar fascia and um, Achilles tendonitis, and I've got some rheumatoid arthritis, and things are starting to really slow me down and I can't do what I would like to do and it's it, it gets frustrating but I just need to find something to do so at times I'll, I'll work with a mate do some laboring do some concreting because it it's the best best exercise for me I get more dopamine out of working six hours than I will out of training an hour hour a day and pushing myself I have that structure I have that discipline and you're around guys that are you can have a laugh with so that's actually been really good for me it keeps me grounded and makes me you know, really go out and, and want to be a, a, a good person because hard work, I don't think you can replace it. Yep. And like, I love training, but I also, it's it's one that I can get myself in trouble with because I, I can't hold back from training as hard as I can. So <laughs> it's it comes at a, a cost to me at times. And I guess I need to find something where I can't push myself to that point where I'm breaking my body down and I need to be able to- Back on that bike. Manage, yeah. I will we'll get on, literally back on the bike. Queensland's a little different to uh, Melbourne with cycling though. Why? Just what people think on the roads, you know. Oh, they're dry. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I love ergos and stuff like that. So the like there's there's plenty of things that I can do. I just have to get myself into the shape where I can consistently do it over time. Because I, I go through phases where I'll train really hard for a month and then my body will break down and I'll have a rest and then I get lazy. And then it takes ages to get back into it. So yeah, I've got to find something consistent. I need to surf more too. I need to be in the Man, get you in surfboard any day. I know. I get out in the water with my dog. I love it. I live on the Gold Coast. I should be in the water exactly. every day. What are you doing? I have a surf this weekend. Damn, my girl works me too hard. She's hard. Too I know we said nice things about her earlier, but they're not true really. <laughs> I love doing work for you. <laughs> Mate, it's been sensational having a chat. I really appreciate you for coming on. You've been a part of our family and story for a long time well, since we started in sport. No, so, I can't yeah. thank you guys enough for everything you've done for me. I'm forever grateful for the support you've given me, the education you've given me, and uh, the friendship and wisdom has been second to none. Oh, well, he's doing some more years. Thanks, Legend, mate. Legend, thank you. Legend. Today's podcast was brought to you by our partners in Fit, Happy and Healthy, ASN, Nutrition Warehouse, DY Discount Vitamins, Fat Burners Only, Evelyn Fay, Mr. Supplement, or find a retailer online at bodyscience.com.au forward slash retailers.